Good morning. My name is Micah. I work in the Conservatory of Music at uh, Wheaton College. I have the benefit of going almost last in this series, and I'm very grateful for those I've heard go before. So grateful, in fact, um, many of them will hear their words repeated back to them today. Uh, I think grace and social media is a lot like grace in their topics, as it turns out, and I will try to give them credit uh, when necessary. I'll mostly just be reading to you from this manuscript in the interest of keeping my thoughts as uh, cogent as possible, and we should have ample time for discussion afterward. I'm really the, I'm the perfect person to give this talk because I'm guilty of all the things I'm going to lay out for you today. If you hear me slip into pronoun usage like they or you or we, um, just know that I, I really mean me. For the purpose of this talk, let's define social media in a, a really broad sense. Virtual extensions of real-world human interaction that include individualized profiles of each user. Virtual extensions of real-world human interaction that include individualized profiles of each user. By this definition, I've been an active user of social media for about 15 years um, before Facebook was really around or even made it a term. When I was in high school, I hung out on uh, Just for Teens AOL chat rooms, talking about all manner of inane topics with people I'd never interact with again. Uh, I would frequent message boards on movie websites like CountingDown.com, where we'd talk a lot about superheroes and super movies, superhero movies. I actually had a blog on Zanga, if anybody remembers that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing those are behind a paywall now, and I, you'd have to pay to access them, or else I could read you some. Be good torture. I measured my, on that website, I measured my online popularity against my friends by how many comments and e-props that I got. Uh, it was kind of a precursor to Facebook likes with something called e-props. And I had a MySpace. My buddy Marcus and I were going to use it to promote our band, but that never took off. And my only friend on MySpace was Tom. Now the, the social media I use today is pretty much the things that everyone uses, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, things like that. I don't have Snapchat because I have a really terrible short-term memory. Um, if you, you know what Snapchat is, you, you send a photo and it disappears, you send a text, it just disappears after two seconds. And I'd send something to someone, it would disappear, they comment on it, and I can't even remember what they sent them, so um, it didn't seem like a good thing to keep that around. Why do we have to talk about grace and social media? How is it different than grace anywhere else? It's different because, uh, as Marshall McLuhan gives us, the medium is the message. And we need to talk about where, we need to talk about grace in practice where we practice it, as well as how. It's also different, I think, because uh, Postman developing on McLuhan, uh, the medium is the metaphor. And I want to discuss social media both as a pitfall and as a metaphor for the law. It exposes our weaknesses, and therefore it's an opportunity for us to realize a need for grace from Christ. Grace in social media is necessary because social media is so ubiquitous. It's common to the point that there's a cost to not participating, and there's a cost to participating. I'm a musician. I'm not a very successful one by the worldly metrics of financial success or notoriety or prolific output, uh, in part because I don't participate in social media and building my brand like I should. I don't curate a Facebook page directing people to my website. I don't even have a website. 
I don't promote my work regularly through Twitter or Instagram, and uh, it's actually been over a year since I emailed anything about my music to um, the paltry email list that I maintain. Even so, if I abstain from social media, I'm accepting a cost to my career. Similarly, if you're a visual artist, uh, imagine working in a visual medium and not taking advantage of the massive audience potential on the internet. There's a cost to that. But there's also a cost to participating, and we're going to talk about that at length because there's a prevailing opinion that social media is bad, or uh, at best, a necessary evil. And I want to explore why in the context of God's grace. So much strong negative opinion about social media. A few of my favorites, uh, Ellen Sacasas, who's a, a technology blogger, calls social media the fidget spinner of the soul. <laughs> Alan Jacobs calls it a propaganda machine. In a piece for Elle, writer, actress Mara Wilson says, social media is a necessary evil like your commute. No one enjoys the bus, she writes, no one enjoys the bus, the subway, or the roads, but they get you where you need to go. They don't actively love it, but they need it and can't just walk away from it. Social media has become a part of their real lives now, and walking away would mean real consequences. But so does staying on. Um, a little background on why she wrote that piece. She was writing because she was being stalked and harassed by someone on Twitter who was tweeting death threats against her, tweeting her address, and Twitter refused to do anything about it. Perhaps the best comes from uh, David Foster Wallace, here talking about the internet as a whole. He writes, despite all the hoopla about populism and information, what it really was was the bathroom wall of the U.S. psyche. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want people leaving this talk feeling like they need to delete their accounts. Um, I'm not interested in law and directives, but you're probably going to catch me giving you a few at some point anyway. Um, but if social media is a broken place, if it is a necessary evil, it needs us to examine how we can fill it with grace. And abandoning it, abandoning it would be of little help and certainly forfeit any of its benefits. Let me read John 1, 14 to 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I read this passage to us for two reasons. One, grace always comes with truth. And truth is something so often left out of the social media equation. Two, the law. The law is a failure. The law is design failure. It's just pointing out how you are a failure. It's not fixing you. It's not making you look good. It's showing you how bad you look. But we keep coming back to it thinking it will make us look good. We feel pressured to appear righteous and glamorous to those around us. To do so is to deny the need for grace. It denies the truth. This is an issue on social media because our accounts, our profiles, are not ourselves. They're avatars of the self. They're weird, curated, disembodied digital projections. 
that thing you maintain, that is your digital self, has become something else entirely than the real you because of the medium. When Rob Lewis spoke about grace in aging and dying, he made the sharp point that dying brings out the best in us because it reveals the extent of God's grace. Grace is most evident not in our living bodies, but in our dying bodies. Unfortunately, since the time of Adam and Eve, we've felt shame about our bodies, and we've become fixated on them. We try to be as undead as possible. Where else but social media are we more guilty of trying to look and seem undead? There's no grace in the lie of the digital self. It denies the truth. That brings us to the first problem with social media that I want to talk about. People are fake and dishonest on social media because that's not really you on there. It doesn't have a body. It, it can't be you. We go one step further in our dishonesty by trying to make ourselves look perfect, usually on that chief offender, Facebook. Facebook is where people lie about how happy they are. <laughs> Facebook is where I saw one of my best friends post photos from a glamorous Riverside photo shoot with her boyfriend and he's holding her and she's smiling and their outfits are beautiful and he's wearing Ray-Bans or whatever. <laughs> Only for me to connect with her in person the very next day and have her break down in front of me. And she sobbed, I'm so unhappy with him and I've got to end this. What a dramatic disconnect between the real and the social media profile. In my reflections on Facebook and the desire to make myself look good, I'm reminded of the Galatians and how they love the law. They abandoned the gospel for the law because they succumbed to the pressure to look good rather than admit that they cannot be good. Facebook is not where people look real, it's where they try to look good. In fact, it's, uh, it's weird when people are vulnerable on Facebook and according to some studies, a predictor of depression. So instead, they're vain. The law fails and they look very, very bad. That brings me to my, my bold leap and I welcome disagreement on this. According to Paul Zoll, there's no difference between the law's pressure for perfection and any other performance-based pressure we feel because they function exactly the same way in human experience. He writes, the principle of the divine demand for perfection upon the human being is reflected concretely in the countless internal and external demands that human beings devise for themselves. One human devised way is the digital selves that we've divorced from the body and used to make ourselves look good. That pressure we put on ourselves when we participate in social media is no different than the pressure of the law. Scrolling through Facebook, I can feel pressure for idolatrous things like wanting to make more money, going on vacation, having an idyllic marriage and family, having more kids, having any kids at all, getting a promotion. I can feel pressure to look holier or more well-informed. I'm very guilty of this on Goodreads. I always want to look smart there. <laughs> we see only the good and we want the good, so we alter our digital selves to look the way we think we need to. Just as the law has no power to transform, making ourselves look a certain way on social media doesn't change the truth of what's in our hearts. Only grace can transform. This is why Paul's all wrote grace in practice. It's for application within the swooning human world, he calls it. He refers to this as a theology of everyday life. He writes, a theology of everyday life perceives that the pressure to be a good Christian and the pressure, for example, to be a good husband are the same in their effect. 
I think I'm only taking it a very small step further when I equate the pressures of social media with the pressure of the law. Just like the law is intended to move us toward goodness, social media is intended to move us toward community, relationships, connect us closer to the ones we love, and introduce us to new people. But instead, it's driven us apart. Our data has been auctioned off to corporations, political debates have driven wedges between us, and hostile agencies have sown chaos with invasive ad campaigns. We've all been turned into judges of our peers. As Matt said last week, when we judge someone, we try to tell their story for them. Just like the law, social media creates the opposite of what it intends to create. In working out this theology of everyday online life, let me bring us back to Fleming Rutledge via Mark Galley way back in September, teaching us about the crucifixion. The fullest expression of grace is in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We mistake grace for kindness if we leave out the cross. Crucifixion corresponds to the gruesome conditions of humanity. If we think we look good at any point, we deceive ourselves. If we don't understand the horror of our sin, grace is just kindness. We pretend like nothing's wrong when we curate our digital selves online. Practicing grace with someone acknowledges there's something wrong in the first place. If we try to pretend the wrongdoing or sin isn't there, evil can be overlooked. And that's niceness. That's like the Twitter feed of Jomney Sun. Jomney Sun is the online alias of author and MIT student Johnny Sun. On Twitter, he pretends to be an alien, cutely misspelling things, trying to learn the human language. It's very saccharine. The little alien acts like an outside observer to human society, and he thinks all the problems in the world would be solved if we were just nicer and sweeter to each other and practiced more self-care. Fine but not without the truth of the human condition. Yes, that may seem like a niche example, but Mr. Sun has over half a million followers, and he's parlayed this sentimentality into a book deal and lucrative merchandise sales. Pretending we look good is a lie that social media can foster, and that leads to performance-based living. That's living under the law. How hard it is to keep the cross and the wrongness of humanity and the need for the gospel in the forefront of our mind in the digital space. For the Galatians, living this lie led to exclusivity. Peter was so worried about looking good, he excluded the Gentiles. He felt pressure from the circumcision group. Paul rebuked them, saying they were not in step with the truth of the gospel, chapter 2, um, 11 to 14. And to correct course, he reminds them in chapter 3 that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Again and again, he brings them back to the proper heart place with imagery that is both terrifying and beautiful. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. He brings us back to the dramatic failure of humans and the gruesome cross. We must beware of the performance trap that ensnares us. Keep going back to the truth of the freedom and power we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be motivated by God's grace, by God's one-way love, because it is the power of God and not our power. Rowan Williams says, grace, not goodness, is the key to our healing. So the first problem is the dishonesty of looking good. The second problem I want to talk about is indiscretion. 
People on social media can be inappropriately honest. It's weird when you see someone being vulnerable on Facebook because anyone can see that. And you all have a different level of familiarity with each other. It's like screaming your problems in the middle of a metro station. I once saw someone on Facebook that I barely knew confessing all of his sins in a single thread. It made me really uncomfortable for him. And yes, self-examination brings us closer to Christ by exposing other weaknesses that he died for. But don't do it with your digital self. Do it with your real self. Usually people aren't vulnerable on Facebook. That's the website for posturing and vanity, the problem of looking good. People lie on Facebook and they're honest on Twitter. Facebook is where you talk about how great your life is and post your perfectly lit brunch photos. And Twitter is where you tell the world you're depressed and anxious and can't even get yourself out of bed in the morning. Facebook is for charm, Twitter is for snark. If the first problem of looking good is dishonesty, the second problem is honesty without discretion. Now, this platform-wise, this is all oversimplification on my part, right? Uh, people will act a certain way on a variety of platforms. There's broad patterns of human behavior online that can be clumped into Facebooking or tweeting. Um, but not everyone is in the same place. Uh, not everyone is the same in each place. And uh, we know there are dozens of other platforms too. Mara Wilson again, the truth is that no one actually cares about the platform. They care about the people who use them. And that may be true, but again, the medium is the message and different social media have their own special brand of graceless chaos. The broad point is if Facebook and Instagram is where people embrace the pressure of the law, Twitter, or more importantly, when people hide behind anonymous screen names, is where people vainly cry out for grace. This interacting with people online who never know who you really are is false vulnerability, or it's disembodied honesty. It's honesty apart from the self, which really isn't honest at all. The anonymity somehow gives people more cause to forget the humanity of who they're engaging with. Someone feels they have to share and they have to process something, but they can't let anyone know it's them and they can't tell anyone that they know personally. It's played out on social media in a number of other revealing ways besides Twitter, um, Tumblr, Confession Bear meme, Experience Project, the website's now shut down. There was a website really popular in 2009 uh, called Post Secret, where people submitted secrets they would never share in public. The creator then turned them into little digital postcards with fancy graphic design and posted them all on the website. Real melodramatic tidbits like, people think I've stopped lying, I've just gotten better at it. It implies a knowledge that what they're doing is wrong, but no desire for true change or growth, just, as a, just a desire to be heard in some way. Connect with me and make me whole is what these secrets seem to cry. Really, it's just allowing us to be voyeurs. It turns out people have been looking for honesty disembodied for uh, quite a while. Over 40 years ago, there was a book published in Italy called The 20 Days of Turin by Giorgio Di Maria. In it, the people of Turin became obsessed with something called the library. The library is a collection of individuals' private journals housed in a wing of a hospital. True, authentic documents reflecting the real spirit of the people. The readers didn't want literature anymore. They didn't want novels. They didn't want something that had been edited by an outside voice, just the raw human outpourings. Anonymous at first, but 
for an additional fee the reader can pay to have contact with the original author. Through this obsession with the library, the city descends into chaos. People become insomniacs, gripped with fear that everyone else has read their darkest secrets. There's a sound of screaming in the distance, but no one knows where it's coming from. A pungent, vinegary smell is everywhere. Monsters appear, and the bodies start to pile up. The curators of the library panic. They become scapegoated, and the project is shut down. The garbage dump sized pile of notebooks, and that's Di Maria's deliberate imagery, not mine. Garbage dump sized pile of notebooks in the hospital. It's burned, but the project reappears in a more widely distributed form, blanketing the whole city this time. There's no escape. The message is clear what's posted can never be unposted. The more you overshare, the more you lose your own soul. When the book was translated into English two years ago, readers were shocked and amazed at the prescient concept of the library, saying it predicted the digital age of oversharing. I saw a number of reviewers compare the library to Facebook specifically, how that platform has covered the whole world. When modern day social media can be a predictor of depression in individuals, perhaps De Maria's sharpest story choice was putting the library in a hospital wing for people who can't get well. And is this really so radical a prediction? In a chapter of Infinite Jest, published 1996, David Foster Wallace writes speculatively about people making video calls on their phones in the future. And they become, they're being so overcome with vanity, they start to put filters on their faces for every call, just like Snapchat. And then they put filters upon those filters. And finally, they just go back to voice calls only. Their vanity gets the best of them. Not that Di Maria and uh, David Foster Wallace aren't extremely good observers of society, but maybe it's not so hard to predict human failure in technology and media, since so many have been able to do just that. Maybe it's just really easy to predict human failure. We've always acted this way, just with different tools. Social media makes us more of who we already are. Hitting a little closer to home, I see similarities to the library in uh, the Wheaton College Confessions Facebook page. Students at a conservative Christian university get to anonymously submit things they've said, things they've done, or just make observations about their real life community. When I first noticed the page in 2013, people used it most often to brag about how cool they are to be drinking alcohol while enrolled at Wheaton or to candidly talk about their sexual identities. They didn't want to talk about these things in the real world. They were afraid of law. I was blessed to see a student tag a professor in one post to see what she thought. The professor responded with such grace. I wish I could scroll back far enough to find what she wrote because it was such a gracious response filled with one-way love. She was supportive, did not condemn, showed that she was listening, not trying to tell their story for them. What she offered wasn't merely kindness because she was acknowledging the hopelessness of the human condition. We're in this with you, she said. I was convicted by her comment because I was just there as a voyeur. I was just reading the post for entertainment. And if I'm going to leave you uh, with one do or do not today, and I'm, I'm trying, trying to avoid law here, it's hard to do. Um, it's this, don't, don't ever use social media for entertainment. We have enough entertainment in society. As long as people are using social media seriously, 
Let's take them seriously. These are real people with real lives. So when I think of a theology of everyday online life, I think it is wholly necessary because social media's divorce from the body has exposed greater need for grace in our lives. It's made us more of who we already are. It's showed us that we're performance-based, envious, proud, vain, or false. It shows that we don't always listen, and we don't always listen, listen holding closely the other person's humanity. For all the talk of medium as metaphor, the message that we need on social media is the same message we've always needed in our real, physical, social lives. And that message is that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace upon grace. Grace with that truth, because without the truth of God's sacrificial one-way love, the grace we extend is just more performing. So what do you all think? Is, is social media a good metaphor for the law? Or am I wrong to drag it through the mud like this? Maybe we just open it up for discussion and comments. Yeah, John. Yeah, it promises something greater, doesn't it? Yeah, you could say that about a number of things. Just having a phone at all, um, going into debt, something completely different, something you sometimes just have to do in society, even though you may feel strong convictions against it, just off the top of my head. Um, but you're right, social media is, should come with a warning label, shouldn't it? Instead of promising so many great things. Good cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it seems there seems some structural similarities between that process mm-hmm. and the allure of getting involved and just finding some love, you know, online, and then the judgment that comes from that, from the cycle, maybe daily. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that you bring that up in connection with your students too. That it's as you counsel and mentor them, this is this is an issue that comes into play. <laughs>
actual flesh and blood neighbor and being vulnerable or <coughs> confessing your sins or you know or even just saying hi this is like this funny thing happened to me today you know like it occurred to me literally this morning like I had a funny thing that I thought oh I could put this on Twitter or oh I could put this on Facebook and then finally I thought or I could just text my friend and tell them about it. And it's like, why don't, you know, like that's like the third thing that I mm -hmm. thought. Yeah. Um, you don't get as, as many likes when you just send it to one person. Yes, yeah. So it's like, oh, you know, let me just, you know, put this out there for affirmation or for, you know, connection or for, you know, quote unquote connection or whatever, you know, like, um, so it is, it is very uh, Yes, yeah, it's, it's the solution and the problem. It's, it's bringing us together, oh, it's, and it's tearing us apart. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. The purple shirt campaign you mentioned was that just one school, or did it did it spread to other schools? I can't remember. Or? I can't recall exactly, yeah. but it was definitely anti-bullying in schools, like anti-cyberbullying, anti-bullying, mm. and um, again, the kids seem to come to the right conclusion as a community, not any individual on their own. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a neat point, and I think it's true. It, it can connect and make things hap happen faster. And I don't think the the ice bucket challenge couldn't have happened um, without social media, or same as you know the Me Too movement couldn't have happened without Twitter, um, and just connecting people who don't know each other but share a common experience. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, 
Yeah. Yeah, and everything that you're posting really really just belongs to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, which is true of your emails too. You know, Gmail owns all of your emails technically and everything that's in your in your Drive account and yeah, that's a good point. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, physical presence means something. Like that's, you know, it's that's why I didn't just live tweet this talk from somewhere else, and why it's like so much more terrifying to be here with like real people in front of me. Um, maybe uh, some of the difference comes in how you're sharing, um, and this is a problem with Facebook and Twitter because it's so fast, and the internet as a whole. You just write it, hit publish, boom, it's there, and usually it's not edited. Um, and in a book, you know, the voice of a book usually has an editor, which I think kind of gets in 
a little bit close to what you're talking about. Go ahead, Seth. Yeah, you, you point to a, a problem that you can't really create a Facebook account or a Twitter account or an Instagram account without creating just a little echo chamber um, because you, you friend people and you only see the posts from those friends. Um, and you know, if one of my friends starts posting things that I don't like, I can snooze them for 30 days or I can unfollow them or I can mute them on Twitter. Um, and so I can, only, I can just only hear all the things that I want to keep hearing. And that's the way Reddit is built, too. Um, it's just a bunch of subreddits where you can, you can have one experience in you know, the Trump Reddit, or you can have one experience in the Democratic Socialists for America Reddit, things like that. Um, you know, I, I really don't know how you, would, how you can break out of it. It just seems like it's just part of, part of how it's built, um, except maybe I mean, we interact with people that we don't agree with and we don't, um, we don't connect with in the best way in real life. Maybe don't snooze them or maybe don't mute them. Yeah, go ahead. One thing I keep going back to is your analogy of the bathroom wall and the... Um, mm. and, maybe, and, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, I haven't seen graffiti in a long time. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, just exposure on a, on a bigger scale, <laughs> which is not, not always what you want. Go ahead, Joy. And that doesn't mean like her 
I have these followers, I'll preach the truth, and I've done my job. Like, mm -hmm. that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that, but perhaps it means when I get into a that means, you know, not snoozing, say my uncle whose political opinions I don't agree with. Or um, engaging with someone with respect, giving them the dignity of the fact that, yes, I'm only seeing a fragmented part of your persona, but I know there is a person behind that. So perhaps it's more of a challenge for us to just be very careful as to how we consume and how we participate, but not to pull back fully. If this is part of the world just as much as our outside world is, and I would pick up the trash on the parade path if I was walking by, consider that maybe what we do, I guess, on our social media, right? Don't litter, don't be mean, don't use and abuse, and perhaps treat it the best way possible, recognizing that there are lives of value behind each of these things. I don't know. I, I think that's messy, and I don't think that's easy work, but I think that's probably more of what we're called to do than to pull back and just have to stay in the time. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it's harder. It's it's harder on social media. But what you've what you've just said is really, really beautiful and really important. And you know, that that should be you know, the warning label that we all have to read before we go on social media. Um, that's really, really important. Go ahead, John. I just want to differentiate um, you know, profiles for people, as you helpfully did early on. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and therefore there's no truth. Do you think the same thing has happened with television? Because we've had te we've had television for a while now, and that's kind of that was something that was you know, condemned for by a number of sources. Do you think that do you think it's improved? Thank you. 
Thanks. I appreciate that. That's a good note of grace upon which to conclude. Perhaps. I agree. Yeah. Micah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>